Hello and welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined in studio by my fellow co-host, Jessica Sharo. What's going on? And Joe Wolfon. What up? We're going to look at 10 early season trends uh, throughout the first two weeks of the season. But before we get into those trends, we have to touch on this one uh, quick news tidbit. The Minnesota Timberwolves have reportedly been offered four first-round draft picks um, from the Houston Rockets in exchange for Jimmy Butler. However, the Timberwolves are apparently saying, no, we, we, don't, we don't want to do this. So who's actually more crazy in this side? Is it the Timberwolves for saying no to four first-round draft picks for a guy who's about to leave? Or is it the Houston Rockets for offering four first-round picks in the first place? I'm going to say both. Um, the Rockets seemingly like going over market here because it, it really doesn't seem like there's much of a market for Butler at all right now, um, just based on kind of the offers that we've heard that are out there. And for the Wolves, like, I don't know, man. I, I feel like this is probably just another case of not wanting to have your coach be your like top basketball <laughs> decision maker because... First of all, if you get four first-round picks, like they have to be staggered out because of the Stepien rule, right? So we're talking about these picks conveying like over the span of about eight years, and I don't think Tom Thibodeau cares what is like going on with the Timberwolves franchise eight years from now, right? Like he probably assumes that he's not going to be around, and it's become clear, I think, in the course of this process that he is more concerned about getting players who can help his team right now. So, I, and for for the Rockets, like. I guess it's it depends on sort of like what uh, salary is also going out because they have to match salary too. So if it's like a deadweight salary like Brandon Knight, that's one thing. If it's Eric Gordon, then that's a, obviously like a completely different scenario. But I have sort of soured on the idea of like Jimmy Butler being the piece that can kind of put them over the top. I, I don't think he's as valuable to them as he would be to another team just because... He's the guy who is most effective with the ball in his hands. And if you put him on a team with James Harden and Chris Paul, like the the touches that he gets are not necessarily going to be as valuable as they would be elsewhere because he's taking then touches away from those guys who, you know, are better with the ball in their hands than he is. So, um, I don't know. Cash, what do you think? No, I mean, I kind of agree with you that they're both um, living on a weird edge here in that from Minnesota's perspective, like you... This isn't even a case of like, you know, usually with a pending free agent, it's like, well, we think he's going to leave and we should, but no, you know he's going to leave. He doesn't want to be there right now, let alone next summer or like next year. So you know you're losing an all-NBA caliber talent for nothing. A, a guy that you gave up quite a bit for, you know, regardless of what you think of Zach Levine. Like they gave up a pretty substantial package for, for Jimmy Butler and like now you're going to lose him for nothing. You can't let that happen. So you got to get something for him. And you know, the Air, no offense to Eric Gordon, he's, he's a fine player, but, like, who cares about him for, for a second? Like, four picks, four first-round picks for a team that's going to need to, like, find avenues to get better in a market that can't necessarily just attract talent. Like, how do you say no to that? How do you say no so quickly to that? The, the Timberwolves are insane. And then from, yeah, like, the Rockets' perspective, so I, I don't remember who it was, but someone made a joke on Twitter of, like, calling them the, uh, like, the Brook the Brookston rock nets or something. Cause they're like saying okay. like shades of obviously Jimmy Butler is better at this point of his career than KG and Paul Pierce were at the time. Yeah. When yeah. And was, they're much closer to contending course, than that Nets exactly. team was as well. But it is funny in that like, look, the, you know, the Rockets are off to kind of a tough start. Um, I think they probably reached their peak last year and that was their best chance to win. And now they're just trying to kind of like push their chips further into the middle with a team that might not be wi- like ready to win anyway anymore. Um, yeah, it just reeks of mismanagement on both sides. 
Um, I'm a little bit surprised that, first off, they went straight to four picks. Like, why not say, hey, we'll trade three picks? That's already headline-grabbing enough. You didn't have to go automatically say four. Like, where are you going to negotiate? You can't even negotiate above that. I think four is actually the maximum that you can trade in a, in a, in a deal. But also, like, man, where was, this, where was this activity? Where was this, like, fervor when Kawhi Leonard was available? Like, I mean, Kawhi, like, he's definitely a better player than Jimmy Butler. I mean, we saw that on Wednesday night when uh, – you know, Kawhi dropped 35 on Butler and led the Raptors to a victory over the Timberwolves. But, you know, it was the same situation there. And you would probably rather have Kawhi. So why didn't we hear about the Rockets and the Kawhi thing, right? And why are we suddenly hearing about it now with Jimmy Butler? Like, I agree, man. I don't think Butler is kind of the guy that takes him over the top. So it's it's strange to hear this. And it, it really is strange for the Timberwolves to say no. I mean, like, I understand that Tibbs won't be around to make these picks. But four picks like you can do a lot with those four picks you can even flip one of those picks right now for a more immediate guy yeah i think that is worth mentioning right because if you are the wolves and you're looking at these picks you're probably assuming at least the ones in the near term are going to be in like the low 20s so i don't know that you can necessarily look at them and be like okay this is going to help our franchise sort of rebuild around towns but you could look at them and be like these are going to be attractive trade chips and help us get in another guy who might help right now if like to your point cash about how he's gonna leave for nothing like add to that the fact that they just need to like get him off of this team this is like so clearly a toxic situation if you look at how carl anthony towns has played early in the season and i'm sure we're gonna get into this later in the pod but like i feel like that's clearly affecting him and there is so clearly like an animus there between them and it's just like an unhealthy situation for everybody involved like the sooner that they can move on from this the better and i just don't know if they're going to get a more attractive offer than this yeah and and the one thing i'll say too with what will was saying about houston is like the thing that kind of concerns me is like you know you talked about how they didn't where was this i guess fervor for Kawhi leonard or in general in the offseason right like the fact that they just come with this apparent, you know, massive offer a week and a half into the season when they're off to kind of a bad start. It just reeks of desperation. And it it just reeks of like a desperation that Daryl Morey usually doesn't stoop to. You know, like you can never imagine a Daryl Morey team giving up four first round picks. And it does make you wonder, like, look, they're under new ownership. You know, Tillman Fertitta taking over the team from Leslie Alexander. It just seems like they're not as prudent as they were maybe a year ago. And I, I don't know, maybe that's reading too far into one reported package. But just if you look at their offseason and now the way they're reacting to like 10 days of a sample size, it to me, it reeks of desperation. Mm. I don't know if the, the lack of prudence necessarily has to do with new ownership, though. I think they just really are. They just really want to go all in on this window that they have right now. Right. Harden's in his prime. Chris Paul is still in his prime, albeit probably at the tail end of it. Like they want to maximize this window that they have right now. And getting off to a bumpy start and not you know, really looking like the team that won 65 games and went to seven games in the Western Conference Finals last year has probably added a little bit more urgency into the situation for them. And to the point about Kawhi, I mean, the Spurs, for all we know, were saying the same thing, right? They, they didn't want picks. They wanted, like, proven all-stars in the present in yeah. that deal. You so, would much rather have Jakob Pertl than first, four <laughs> first-round picks, I mean. I mean, I'm not saying it's the right approach. I'm just saying that, you know, from everything we heard, that was kind of uh, the, the way that they were approaching that situation as well. So maybe the Rockets did try and get Kawhi, and, you know, the, the Spurs just weren't biting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like, I don't know, man. It's reached a point, I think, where the Wolves just, like, have to make a decision here. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like they have really any idea of what they're looking for, at least within reason. Like, they probably have some fanciful idea in their heads about what kind of package they want to get in return. Mm-hmm. 
But it seems obvious to me at this point that they're not going to get what they are looking for, and they need to make some compromise at some point in time. And, like, if Josh Richardson isn't the guy, like, that's probably, like, the best young player that they're going to get offered in a deal like this. Mm -hmm. That wasn't good enough for them. Four first-round draft picks is probably the most that they're going to get in terms of, like, future draft capital in a deal like this. That's not good enough for them. So, like, what are they looking for? Yeah. Because they're not going to get it. Tibbs just wants to recreate the Timberwolves, man. You're not getting you're not getting one of the former Bulls from him. But um, where's Joachim Noah at? I, he's available. He's available. I'm surprised he's not what, going. What there. does it say about Joachim Noah's like ability in 2018 that even Tom Thibodeau <laughs> won't bring him into that like yeah. Timberwolves culture? Seriously, oh, man. I mean, he brought in like John Lucas one year. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Man. The third. Um. Anyway, so that's the news for now. Let's look at some early season trends. We got ten of them right now. Uh, let's start with San Antonio who have the worst defense in the league by more than five points per 100 possessions. They're worse than the Chicago Bulls by a full five points per 100 possessions. Um, I mean, it's only been four games when they're two and two, but they kind of squeaked by their two games. Um, otherwise, they've just been flat out terrible defensively for all four games. And the context here is, look, San Antonio is a team that has historically been built off of elite defenses. Just going by basketball references, like relative defensive rating, they have been somewhere between good and elite. In 29 of the last 30 years, and that one year that they weren't elite, they got Tim Duncan. So, like, we're going from David Robinson to Tim Duncan to Kawhi Leonard, and now this year, they are dead last. So, I think we all believe that they're going to be a little bit better than dead last, but how good can this team be? Because the personnel, defensively, is just so, so bad. Look, if we're sticking to just defense, this start is absolutely sustainable. I don't look, I don't think they're gonna be five points worse than right. that's obviously not sustainable. And maybe sure they creep up to like 26, 25th, but like the, I don't care who's coaching this team, there's no conceivable way that you build a good or even average defense with this roster. Like we talked about this early in the season. Who are the two best defenders on this team? I think they're Jakob Pertle and probably DeJounte Murray. DeJounte Murray obviously hurt. Like so you're left with a team where, like, okay, I guess Aldridge in the post is a pretty good one-on-one defender, but other than that, he's not a good defender. And then Jakob Pertl's literally the best defender on this team. And he's playing, like, eight minutes a game yeah, right now. Yeah, you know, like, they didn't even play him at all. I can't remember uh, who it was against, but they're definitely using him, like, as a matchup thing, like, against more, I guess, traditional centers. They're playing him, and against quicker guys, they're not. So the, the only really good defender on the team isn't playing and or is hurt. Um I, like there's just nowhere to turn on this team to look at it and be like, okay, well this guy can help their de- like no, they're just it's a terrible roster of defensive players. I think this was always going to be the year where we figured out what the limits were to Popovich's system, mm-hmm. and five games is not enough of a sample to be able to tell exactly where those limits are. But like last year, they didn't have a ton of great defensive personnel and still managed to be a top five defense somehow. So. I think a lot of us, myself included, assumed that they would find a way to like claw their way to somewhere around league average. I'm not convinced that's not going to happen, but man, oh man, like they really are light on quality defenders, and like their quite best honestly, defender like, is Dante Cunningham. Yeah, or like Rudy Gay. And even, even. Rudy even, Gay's been been fine basically, <laughs> but like around him, it's like I mean, Patty Mills, DeRozan, like Lamarcus it, is not great. Although on this team, he's probably their second best defender. Well, and Will, Will and I were talking about this yesterday, like, off-air, that, okay, LaMarcus Aldridge is a fine post defender. He really is. But, like, 
in today's game, how many possessions, say there's around 100 possessions in a game, a lot more nowadays, but still, like in, in general, but out of 100 possessions, how many of those possessions is it just a guy, like LaMarcus Aldridge defending a guy one-on-one in the post? There's just not that many of them. So right. like, No, I agree. I, but I do think that he has improved as like a pick-and-roll defender. He's at least more savvy about like where to be and like how to use his feet. Like even if he's not the quickest laterally, like mm-hmm. I think he's a heady enough player that he can make up some of the deficit. But like... Man, I, I don't actually know why they aren't playing Pirtle more um, because Pau Gasol looks really bad. And, I, you know, playing Aldridge at center, I guess, makes sense. But doing it for, like, that much of a game, I feel like, is part of the reason that they've had so much um, trouble defending because, like, him as the last line of defense is not really going to be a great option because he's not, like, a particularly good rim protector. Mm -hmm. And as far as just, like, being, like, a vocal communicator who's going to be able to kind of anchor a defense, I don't quite think that he's that guy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, they lost Danny Green. They lost Kyle Anderson, who was actually pretty good for defense on them last year. DeJounte Murray was on the all-defensive teams. He's out for the season with an ACL tear. Obviously, that was very unfortunate. They didn't see that coming. But um, they just have such a large downgrade in personnel and and even the guys like tony parker mana Ginobili, those guys are good communicators like you mentioned um without that like you just look at that team it, it's if they don't have defense and they really do need to be elite offensively to compete because last year the only reason they made the playoffs and they barely squeaked in the playoffs was because they had the third best defensive rating at the moment right now they're allowing opponents to shoot 50 percent from the field 43 percent from three and they're fifth last in turnovers force so uh the spurs are definitely in trouble one team that's not in trouble because uh, the Spurs traded them, Kawhi Leonard, is the Toronto Raptors. They're undefeated right now, and um, there's been a lot of attention for Kawhi, and I think rightfully so. But Kyle Lowry is kind of going under the radar right now. He has been stellar to start the season. He is leading the NBA right now with 10 assists per game. So I got to ask you guys, can he keep this up? Because Kyle has never really been uh, a high assist kind of guy. I think he can keep up this level of play, but I don't think he's averaging 10 assists per game, and I don't think he's going to finish the year leading the league in assists, I guess, is my short answer. But that's taking nothing away from his performance. I actually think he's been the best Raptor overall so far through five games, even a little better than Kawhi. And again, I think he'll be pretty good all year. I just don't think he's averaging 10 assists a game. I don't know if he'll average 10 assists per game, but I feel like he can keep this up in terms of, like, I think he can average a career high in assists this year because he's never had this much offensive talent around him. I don't think he's ever had this kind of spacing around him before. And that has really opened things up for him, I think, in the pick and roll particularly. And you've seen how effective those Raptors bigs have been. Like, Sergi Baca and Jonas Valanciunas being split up, basically being like one in, four out. Those guys have had like so much space to operate, and they're, they're both scoring really effectively out of the roll. And Kyle Lowry is sneakily a really, really good passer. Like, he doesn't get a ton of credit for it just because... Um, it's not really like a focal point of his game. Like he gets more credit for like his pull-up jump shooting, uh, his defense, like his effort level, but he's a, a sneakily really good passer. And I think that started to shine through a lot because um, the spacing isn't cramped. And like him playing alongside DeRozan all those years, I think made it a little bit trickier for him to kind of show off those skills. Um, and, and a lot of that had to do with the cramped spacing. A lot of it had to do with DeRozan kind of dominating the ball on a lot of possessions. But where was Kyle Lowry like most successful the last few years it was like when he played with four other bench guys guys who played with a little bit more pace guys who could space the floor a little bit better and I feel like now he's playing with lineups like that all the time so I do see this being like sustainable in terms of him you know just being a playmaker um, and you know someone who's going to continue to 
get like high assist numbers and potentially, I don't know, average close to 10 assists per game. Yeah, I think ultimately there are going to be other players in the league that surpass them. Um, just because usually you see more than 10 assists per game as the league leader. But I think I think Lowry is in for a career year, like you guys mentioned. I think two things really stand out to me right now. One thing is that he's being more efficient with his touches. So he's getting the same amount of touches as he was last year. Um, 74 touches per game this year as opposed to 76 last season according to um, tracking data. Um, but he's just making more with those touches, right? And when you look at who he's throwing the assists to, 1.6 assists per game to Kawhi, 1.6 to Danny Green, 1.8 to Pascal Siakam, 2 per game to Serge, and then 1 per game to JV and OG Ananobi. Like, that's just beautiful distribution, and that really shows you that he is keeping the whole team's offense running, right? Um, and so it, it's uh, it's been a great start for, in Toronto, and, and Kyle Lowry really deserves um, more credit for doing that. Um, but ha- having said that, though, he hasn't averaged more than 7.5 assists per game in 13 seasons, so it would... Uh, you know, it would be a bit of an outlier, but I think this year it does look kind of sustainable. Um, one thing that might not be sustainable is the Los Angeles Lakers supporting cast. They have looked incredible um, in, in some games. Some of, the, some of the players have looked incredible. I should really qualify that. Uh, and the guys I'm looking at are Lonzo, JaVale McGee, and uh, Josh Hart. So let me just ask you guys, do you think that the Lakers supporting cast is good enough, or do you think that they still have an in-season trade to make? Well, the one thing I'll say is like... I- the ones that surprise me aren't any of the young guys. It's like JaVale McGee being able to actually like log minutes mm-hmm. um, and Lance Stevenson in the last couple of games. Like those to me are more surprising. But whereas like Josh Hart, I think is kind of doing what a lot of people thought he was capable of doing. Lonzo, okay, the shooting might be a little surprising, but I think most of us thought Lonzo was going to be an impact player this year. Uh, Ingram suspended right now. Kuzma's been solid. So like for me, the young guys, I always believed in. I'm more surprised by like the JaVales and Lance Stevenson's of the world, and that's where I think the question comes up, right? Because do we expect JaVale McGee to be able to play a decent amount of minutes for six months? I'm not sure. Can like, you know, we know about good ba- Lance and bad Lance, and the last couple nights have been really fun, um, but we know that there's going to be some nights where you know he has like six turnovers, and it's fun in the other way. So I'm still not ready to buy into like that part of the team. I mean, first of all, JaVale has been legitimately good. Yeah, and, and I think that's maybe been the most surprising thing to me. And he's doing it over like 25 minutes a game, which is not something that I expected. Um, he's been a very solid rim protector. He's been a great role man. Um, you know, still not great defending in space. Like he was guarding Nikola Jokic last night and like didn't do a great job closing up to the three-point line. He's clueless. It, it is what it is. He has high block numbers because he's very athletic. But yeah. it, he's clueless, man. But... You know, the things that he has historically been able to do well, he's doing all of those things yes, well right sure. now, and he's been able to sustain it, which has been a big surprise for me. Um, and, you know, as far as people who have looked good playing alongside LeBron, he's right up there. Uh, and and Lonzo, I mean, like, he looks so much more comfortable yeah. shooting the ball. And that, to me, is huge, because the rest of his game is already pretty developed, right? Yep. Like, he looks great defensively, um, and obviously, like, his ball handling and his passing are going to be pluses no matter what. So... If that shooting can continue, and like again, like he was looking comfortable shooting it off the dribble. He had a nasty step back on Jokic last night. Yeah. Where in the fourth just, quarter, like at a very important moment, he decides to step back and he hits the three. Yeah, and yeah, like, you know, very all, confident, all around fantastic game right. um, against Denver. So, yep. um, I think there are the makings of a decent supporting cast. Do they still have a trade to make? I think so, or yeah. you know, like a buyout market pickup to make something like that because. In spite of how well JaVale has played, that still leaves them with like 20-plus minutes a game where they're playing small ball. Yeah. And I still don't see that being like a viable long-term solution, man, because 
LeBron can do it in short spurts, but I just don't think he has the energy or really the will to do that over the course of the season. Right. And I don't think Kuzma really has the ability to do it. Um, just because, like, he is not good enough as a rim protector and backline defender to make up for the fact that, like, he isn't good on switches. You know, like, he doesn't really offer you either of those things. And if you're not getting either of those things, then I don't think you really have a center. Yeah. I mean, Jonathan Williams has been a very surprising um, contributor, but he's like six foot eight and he's purely out there for his energy. And I've actually been really impressed with him. I thought great hustle. Great hustle. He almost won that game for the Lakers in overtime against the Spurs. Um, before LeBron choked. No, I'm kidding. Uh, LeBron did miss two free throws. But, I mean. Will's doing this podcast in uh, a Lake, uh, Kobe jersey. One of those ones that's like half number eight, half number 24. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The man with two numbers in the stands. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that, like, yeah, all, long term, like, they can't really just go with one center. and That one center being JaVale. But I also am really happy for JaVale because I feel like he's just had, like, a really unfortunate career. Like, you know, he came in, like, with a tough situation with the Wizards. He got a reputation that way. Obviously, he learned sort of – I mean, we've all seen the highlights of him, like, throwing the ball off the glass and then missing alley-oops and, like – He contributed to that reputation in significant Exactly, ways. but I'm saying, like, he got – he came up in the league through a, a, a sort of a strange culture. That, that Wizards team under Gilbert Arenas was very, very weird. And it sort of produced a lot of players like that, like Nick yeah, Young, I mean, for example. He had his shoes pooed in, like in his rookie <laughs> Yeah, season, Andre so. Blatch. Oh, yeah, no, sorry. Who, was it Blatch? Blatch got his shoe pooed in. That wasn't McGee. Don't, don't it's, it's hard Come to on. remember. Was, I think it was it's, more than one guy. It's hard. That, Wizards, that Wizards era, it's honestly hard to remember whose shoes were shit in and like who was bringing guns to the room. There was a lot of... Chaos uh, yeah. there. Point being, like, being part of that locker room culture is not so, going to be healthy for anybody. So. If I may right. interrupt, um, do you guys know who the GM of the Wizards was at that time? It's oh the God. same guy that's still the GM of the Wizards. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Ernie Grunfeld so is on his fifth for, rebuild, to man. record the podcast when Ernie Grunfeld finally gets fired. Hey, guys, yeah. we're not wishing ill on anybody. Okay? We're going to throw a party. Well, it's never going to happen, guys, so um, don't worry about it. The podcast is going to be long gone before <laughs> Ernie Grunfeld gets fired. Um, um, but, yeah, like, I think it's funny because I feel like Nobody really knew whether JaVale had actually sort of improved or, like, yeah. figured things out because he was playing with the Warriors, who it's like you could have yeah. basically plugged anybody into that backup center spot. And then before and that, he was, like, hurt for, like, a solid two and a half years. Right. And he spent four or five years playing, like, ten minutes a game or less. So I think seeing him actually do it on a team that actually needs him is really inspiring. Yeah, uh, and then finally, shout out one time to Josh Hart for averaging 15.6 points per game and 2.2 steals, shooting 51% from the field and 45% from three. That's just phenomenal development from a second-year player. Um, and I've always liked him, going back to his days at Villanova. He's just always been like a solid player, um, and it's nice to see him shine. I think he fits really well with LeBron. A lot better. than He's like KCP with some sense. KCP has been brutal, man. Yeah, that's why KCP is going to be sitting on the bench. Yeah, he's just sitting on the bench. Um the next one, the Sacramento Kings have been shockingly competent. Um, they have been feisty. They've been in most games that they've played in. I can't really say anything to that because I haven't seen too much, but Wolfon, you put this on the list. So let me ask you, are they actually a quote-unquote super team just young, as Vladi Divac called them? I'm a believer, man. Yeah. Uh, no, not quite. But <laughs> okay. it's, I just think it's been nice to see them look like an NBA team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think they're going to be good. They're still going to lose a ton of games this year. But they're definitely going to be more competitive, and I like the way that some of their young players have developed, frankly. I think Willie Cauley-Stein has looked like really good. Uh, he showed off a pretty nice touch around the basket, and De'Aaron Fox, I think, is going to be a player. Like He is so fast. 
and so strong. Like, I think he can be like a plus defender. And he is averaging eight free throw attempts per game. So he's just been like really aggressive getting to the rim. And he hasn't been shooting the ball particularly well at all. But um, when I watched him play in preseason, he was like looking pretty comfortable shooting it off the dribble. Yeah. And I think that that shot is going to come with time. And like the fact that he has shown this development in all the other areas of his game is really encouraging to me. And I, th- I think Bagley has actually looked surprisingly okay. Yeah. Um, Bialitsa has been a really nice addition for them. Yep. He Down would look the- great on the Sixers right now, you know? Yeah. Man, tough break for that. <laughs> <laughs> tough break for the Sixers to have Bialitsa stolen from you. Yeah. That's um, not what you expect. We should have known the Sixers were in for disappointment when a player spurned them to go to Sacramento. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. No, but seriously, he would actually look really good for them. Like, he's kind <laughs> no, of exactly what they need. Dario Saric has not been very good, so. No. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think there are, like, a lot of signs that they're going to start regressing at the offensive end, which is really where they've been competent, because defensively they've still been a bit of a mess. And they're shooting, like, 40% from three, which I don't think is going to last. They're shooting over 50% from the field, which isn't going to last. Um, so there is some regression coming their way, but, like, they play hard, and I just actually feel like they're building towards something for the first time in a really long time. Yeah, I do think they have, like, a nice little core there. Um, and that kind of, like, fits the modern NBA in terms of their, like, yeah. speed and versatility. I'm, they could probably use some more shooting as time goes on, but they've obviously got a lot of time to figure this out. I just – I keep coming back to the fact that, like, as, as promising as the first five games have been, it's still so depressing to, like, sit back and think about, like, oh, but they're still not getting their pick this year, yeah. you know? Because, yeah. like, you look at it and, like – was worth Man. it for Nick Stauskas, though. Right? Like, if, they, if you could add, like, an RJ Barrett to this oh team. My, that's exactly what I was saying. Like, if yeah. they could add, like, a 2-3 kind of player, yeah. like, slasher, like, um, like that you can build an offense around while these other guys do everything else, then you're talking. Like, you've yeah. actually got the makings of something, and they're not going to get that player because, as Joe just mentioned, they gave up the pick that they should have had this coming year in the trade that dumped... I believe, Stauskas. Yeah, yeah, to create room to, I think, try and sign Wesley Matthews. And instead sign Rajon Rondo, like Karan Butler, and, and, and whoever else they signed that summer. Yeah, it was like the third option. I think they also it, wanted uh, Monte Ellis or something like that. Just a disaster. And now, <laughs> yeah. I mean, as fun as they've looked for five games, they're still going to be one of like the five or six, seven worst teams in the yeah. league and not have a chance to... They could actually use Stauskas, too, right now. The guy's hey, shooting yeah, the lights there. Stauskas is playing great. So, in, so that's in what Portland. it comes back to with the Kings, right? Even when they are surprisingly competent, you think, oh, there might be something here. There's still always that, like, mm-hmm. that sadness that smacks you in the face. Uh, one, Stauskas? Oh, my God. <laughs> he shoots like clay, man. But now they have, no, he now shoots they have like Buddy Steph, Heald. He's big like clay. Now they have Buddy Heald, who, I, who he really is, who does really shoot like Steph and is big like... No, I'm kidding. Um, no, but I really do like Buddy Heald. He's... Um, He's, I've always thought he's going to be a good player. Um, he's never really going to be much of a defender, but he's like he's like what Tim Hardaway Jr. should be. And uh, I just think he's a really good shooting guard um, prospect. One guy that you're not surprised is very competent is Blake Griffin, who um, is more than competent right now. He looks reborn, as Joe Wolfon put it. Um, you know, he lo- He's looking brand new. That was a great piece. That was a great piece. Plug so that. Thanks, please guys. read it on the score mobile app. But um, Blake Griffin right now averaging 34 points per game. Shooting 65% on threes, and a lot of threes, 11 rebounds, 5 assists. Um, obviously, those numbers are going to come down a little bit over time. But how good are the Pistons? Because they're 4-0 right now. I still like have to see a lot more of them, and, and specifically more of them playing against actual good teams, because 
Wow. Who have they played so far? Chicago, Brooklyn. What about the Sixers? Sixers without Ben Simmons, and yeah. then the Cavs without Kevin Love. So um, the fact that they have won those games is good. You know, it's better than not winning those games. Um, they've won them by narrow margins, and the rest of the team has looked kind of, eh, okay. Uh, Drummond had a really rough start, though he had a really good game against the Cavs, so hopefully he'll start to round into form. Um, Reggie Bullock has looked great, but Luke Kennard now is out for three to four weeks, and obviously... They don't have a lot of wing depth to yeah. sacrifice right now, so um, they're in a bit of a danger zone there, but I think Reggie Jackson has actually looked pretty good, and part of that has been like they've really turned Blake Griffin into kind of a de facto point guard, and Reggie Jackson playing off the ball a little bit more I think has actually like opened his game up a little bit because he's shooting the ball well, um, and I think he's actually like been a surprisingly good off-ball mover, which is not something I necessarily would have expected from him. Um, Ish Smith has looked really good. Laugh if you want to. Like he's had a couple of really nice games. And Dwayne Casey's rolling with the two point guard lineup a lot. He is, yeah, and that's obviously was a staple of his Toronto teams as well, and and they've been pretty effective. But uh, to get back to Blake, um, the thing that I have seen from him that has like really stood out to me, um, and that makes me think that he is actually going to be like a different player who will be able to adapt to the modern NBA better than I thought he would, is just his decisiveness. Like, last year, he was kind of trying to do the point-forward thing, but he was dribbling a lot and kind of spending a lot of time on the perimeter or in the mid-range. Now it's like, first of all, they're playing a lot quicker. They're getting the ball down the floor in, like, a couple of seconds, and he is just, like, going to work, like, getting right into the post. Anytime he sees a mismatch, sizing it up, going to work on the block. His handle looks way tighter to me. His passing has improved, like, and and it was already good, um, but he's thrown some really dazzling passes already. Um, and he's proved like totally capable, I think, of running the break and doing a really effective job of act- actually like orchestrating their offense. Um, their offense has been great. Uh, their defense, not so much. But I have faith that um, over time, like as long as their defense kind of catch up a little bit, that they're going to be a solid playoff team. Yeah, look, I, I think it's an encouraging start for them for sure, and w- one they needed. I don't. I'm not even surprised that Blake looks the way he does in this like point forward role. Um, because you guys remember, like, he did this with the Clippers a lot in that one stretch a few years ago when Blake was getting MVP love, when Chris Paul got hurt, and the Clippers went on a tear with Blake Griffin playing this kind of role. Like, the guy's a great all-around basketball player, at least offensively. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. It, it's very similar, actually, to the way the Clippers started. The Clippers started last year 4-0, and mm. and they won their fourth game on a Blake Griffin buzzer-beating three oh, at the win. Like, it's, against it's, Portland, yeah. Yeah, it's like a lot of deja vu between the yeah. way the Clippers started last year and the Pistons. The Pistons also year. started last year 14-6, and six, there you so go. let's not get too and, excited. And the one um, reason I'd say to pump the break is, like, if you look at the other undefeated teams in the NBA, it's New Orleans, Toronto, and I think Milwaukee are the only other undefeated teams. Those net ratings are like plus 10, plus 11, almost plus 13 in New Orleans' case. You look at the Pistons, who have had a pretty soft schedule, and even though they've won every game, their net rating is under plus 3. So, like, all things considered, they they look solid, mm-hmm. and they're taking care of business when they should, but they don't look great. And I think as they, you know, like, they've got a home-and-home home with the Celtics now, their next two games. Like, I think you'll start to see who this team really is, and it's not necessarily bad. It's just a lot close to mediocre than it is to this perfect team. Um, I want to give a shout out to Dwayne Casey, who uh, famously had the phrase "pound the rock," which inspired the name of this podcast. Um, Dwayne's doing a really good job in Detroit so far. I think everyone's very happy with what Dwayne has shown. Um, you know, Dwayne gets a lot of knocks for his play calling, but two games already out of four, it was Dwayne Casey dialing up a really good play to win the game in a tight moment. The first one was um, in Chicago. 
where it was a tie game. Dwayne Casey calls timeout after Zach Levine hits this crazy three at home at the United Center to tie the game, and the Pistons have the ball. And Dwayne dials up this, like, double high screen play, which, like, he used to run that all the time in Toronto. Um, and he put the ball in Ish Smith's hands, which is not the guy you would expect to go to, right? You would probably think you're going to Blake Griffin or you're probably going to Reggie Jackson if you're going to a guy on the perimeter. He goes to Ish Smith, and he goes to that double screen, and he does it specifically so that he can attack Jabari Parker and bring everyone out of the paint and then have a one-on-one between Jabari Parker and a really quick guard. And what does Ish Smith do? He crosses up Jabari. Jabari makes a mistake because he's so bad defensively. And Ishmith goes to the goes to the rim and he scores a layup and that was the game and they won that game and they probably shouldn't be that close against the Chicago Bulls who are just terrible but like still that's you need good play calling at end of games and Dwayne delivered that sense and then you know the more uh, obvious example is against the Sixers man I mean he dialed up that exact same play for Jonas Valanciunas um, in a game I think in January or February last season for the Raptors where the Raptors are down to. Um, they impounded the ball to JV, who's not the guy you would expect in Toronto to shoot the ball. You'd probably go for Kyle Lowry or DeMar DeRozan, right? Um, but then JV fakes the dribble handoff and then goes through and dunks it. And it, he really was fouled. I mean, there was no foul called on in the Raptors' sense. They actually went on to lose in overtime against the Bucks. But in this game specifically... <laughs> Let's not get off track here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was still, a little, bad, bit, still a little bit burned by that. The Raptors should have won 60 games last year. Um but in this case, like, Blake Griffin pulls out that exact same play. He goes to the rim. He actually gets the end one. And then he wins the game against um, the Sixers. And it's like Dwayne Casey has re- – expectation for him really is just to set a culture there in Detroit and get everyone on the same page and just be a functional franchise, right? But I think people do sleep on the fact that he has a couple of nice end-of-the-game plays. I mean, like, these are probably two out of the three plays you'll ever call – the other plays probably just have a high screen in the middle of the court, and then the point guard runs straight to the rim. But, like, you know, Dwayne has, generally speaking, done a good job of um, coaching the, the Pistons so far. And I think uh, he deserves a lot more love for that. Yeah, listen, Dwayne Casey's a really good NBA coach, man. Like he, yeah, pound the rock. Uh, yeah, he – but, you know, even, like, the whole pound the rock thing, forget that it's the name of the spot. Like, the whole, like, theme of that goes with – what Dwayne Casey instill like demands of his teams and and finds a way to instill in them, which is like we're going to we're going to like have a culture here of just hard work and like incremental gains, like day mm-hmm. by day, week by week, season by season, yeah. and that's what you saw in Toronto. And obviously, six straight years yeah, of improving the record. Like Masai Ujiri, um, obviously gets you know a lot of the credit as he should for doing what he did in Toronto, and and the players there get credit as they should. But like Dwayne Casey was a massive part of that. And he started turning the culture the year before Masai Ujiri even arrived. Like, that team still wasn't good. But it was – there was a promise there and this, like, workman-like culture that Dwayne instilled that hadn't been in Toronto in a, there in a long time. Yeah, I just think Dwayne Casey in general doesn't get enough credit, which is weird to say about a guy who just won Coach of the Year uh, as voted on by the media. But I still don't think he gets enough credit for just, like, his actual basketball tactics. Yeah, and I think he should get credit, too, for kind of modernizing the Pistons' offense, frankly. Yep. Like, they're shooting more threes, they're moving the ball around more, and I, I just feel like it, there's been, like, a lot more sort of free-flowing actions there than there's been in the past under Stan Van Gundy. And he, the players have even talked about it, you know, how Van Gundy was really, like, very structured, like had set plays that he wanted them to run in case he's sort of like letting them improvise a little bit more. And we saw a lot of that in Toronto last year and how that opened things up for that offense. Um, and, you know, Nick Nurse got a ton of credit for that. So it's nice to see that Dwayne Casey has kind of transferred that over to Detroit. It's it's very hard to find a guy who ha- like can blend the 
the old school mentality of like hard, you know, as Dwayne was just like, you come to work with your hard hat on, like a construction worker. It's hard to find like a coach who has that mentality while also being open to change and adaptable, like adaptability wise, um, in terms of like the way he runs his team basketball wise. You just don't find that. Usually, guys are one or the other, and yeah, Dwayne should get lauded for being a combo of both. Yeah, and look, I think we've all personally dealt with Dwayne as well. Like he is just a first class individual as well to deal with. So. Um, you know, definitely cheering for him. We're going to take a quick break right here. And when we come back, we're going to look at five more early season trends. Hey, listeners, a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. We also urge you to check out our other shows on the Scores Podcast Network. For baseball fans, there's Expand the Zone, Sweeper Keeper, Covers the World of Soccer, and there's the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. Please also download the Score app, where you can find all our feature content, live scores, and the most up-to-date breaking news. Thank you, and back to Pound the Rock. Welcome back to the second half of Pound the Rock. Still here with Cash and Wolfon. We're still looking at uh, early season trends. We're going to go out west. Um, Stephen Curry is playing better than he did during that unanimous MVP season, which I think, personally speaking, the most fun season I've seen from any player uh, start to finish he was just a killer that year Steph is actually doing better than he was that year right now Steph currently at 35 points per game on 55 percent from the field 52 percent from three on almost 13 attempts per game and 91 percent from the free throw line um, so he's scoring more points he's shooting more threes more assists better percentages than the MVP year um, he just had 51 points in three quarters against the Wizards which uh, shout out to KD for just deciding that, you know what, the Wizards, you guys clearly don't want to do anything tonight. I'm just going to take myself out of the game. Um, but do you guys think that the Warriors are more fun with Steph running the show versus having this overabundance of all-stars where everyone has to get their looks? The Warriors are just more fun when Steph is being Steph. And I honestly, like, I don't even really know what to say about him at this point because it's not like he is doing anything new, right? Like, his yeah. game has been the same for, I think, the last few years. But he's just doing more. Yeah, and, and it's really just a question of, like, how much is he feeling it? And he has been extremely feeling himself, like, for the first five games of this season. Um, and, like, obviously, like, having so much fun out there and doing a little jig every time he hits, like, a 35-foot pull-up bomb. And Yeah, just, we don't talk about enough about how Steph is, like, a very family-friendly Lance Stevenson after making a shot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think uh, I think there was a Deadspin uh, piece that um, was basically talking about how he was just like the the most like the, the most like harmless or like jubilant assassin that there is in the game. Like he just it's like a respectful form of disrespect. Yeah, like he's just like a giddy kid out there, but he is at the same time absolutely ripping your soul from your body. Um, but it's fun. I, I feel like he always seems to do this against the Wizards. Is that just my imagination, or does he always seem to absolutely destroy them? I, I can't get started on the Wizards. <laughs> um, but well, yeah. the Wizards have the best backcourt in the league, so it obviously Steph would want to prove yeah, maybe, something. Maybe against it like them. fuels him. <laughs> yeah, he really wants to show how John Wall plays both ends, as in plays offense for the opposing team too. Because <laughs> I think there's a. I'm not exactly sure about the stat, but I think John Wall directly guarding Stephen Curry was responsible for 41 of those points. That's actually amazing. But. I don't think there's anything that anybody could have done about no, most of no, those it's points, not right? Like, the guy is bringing the ball up the floor, and honestly, like, as soon as he crosses half court, he's a threat to pull up. And some of those, like, some of those pull-ups, there were two guys draped all over him, and it yeah. didn't matter. Like, if you backpedal off of him a foot, it's yeah. over. And if you don't, 
Like, if you try and play up on him, like, he's just going to blow by you and get to the rim and either kick it out to somebody else for an open three or have a ridiculous finish at the rim. Like, when he's going like this, there's really nothing that you can do. And it's just... I think the Warriors are more fun when it's, like, the clear hierarchy, mm-hmm. offensively at least, is that, like, it is his team. Yeah. Um, and that makes them just, like, so much more enjoyable to watch. Yeah. Uh, Why can't KD just be Harrison Barnes and stand in the corner and not <laughs> miss seven straight threes in the NBA Finals? Yeah. Well, Will, I asked you this off the air yeah. yesterday. Like, do you think if KD goes and signs with the Knicks um, next summer mm-hmm. and the rest of the Warriors roster remains basically unchanged. Or let's say they replace him with somebody like a Harrison Barnes caliber player. Are the Warriors still like the clear championship favorite? I don't think they're the clear championship favorite, but I think it makes for a more fun season because then you have a scenario where it isn't just a foregone conclusion that the Warriors are untouchable. Like, you know, then you're looking at if the Raptors re-sign Kawhi Leonard. That's a team that can win the championship. The Boston Celtics, that's a team that can win the championship. Wherever team KD goes to, that's probably a team that can win Who the championship. Who joins LeBron in LA? That would be great. I would love that, right? I mean, that almost I'm not would even be saying KD. I'm saying in general. Like, the Lakers oh. would be then one more star away from yeah. competing. Yeah, I, w- I would kind of prefer to see KD go to LA, to be honest. Just, like, form a new, like, super team that everyone hates and just KD be the most hated player ever with, like, seven rings. But... um no, I mean, I've, the Warriors would be right up there. And I think, quite honestly, a little part of me is kind of hoping that it happens because I think the Warriors are just way more fun yeah. when Steph is hunting for shots like this. I guess I'm just asking, like, is Steph the best player in the league? Like, if the talent was sort of, like, yeah. evenly dispersed or all the superstars in I, the league were kind of, like, um, scattered and had their own teams, like, mm-hmm. would Steph's team not still be the best team? He has the He's the best individual system i think every superstar imposes a system on the team steph is the best system. yeah i'd still take number 23 yeah fair enough like I mean, a winner take all like, Fred Van Vliet? <laughs> all all things <laughs> equal good, but damn. all things equal like winner take all game the rest of the roster are pretty similar I, i'd still take lebron but i i, I am one of the I, I don't know if i'm in the minority anymore but like i still think steph's a little better than kd yeah um definitely more liked <laughs> way more well liked um, next one, the Boston Celtics are currently 29th in offensive rating after a scintillating performance against the Oklahoma City Thunder, who are just terrible, by the way. We'll talk about them in a second. Um, yeah, the Celtics right now. So they're 21% on wide open threes. That's no defender within four to six feet. Um, Marcus Morris is their most efficient player and really the only if efficient player i think league average right now for efficiency true shooting wise is about 55 percent. that's when you factor in the added point of a three-pointer and also free throws into your uh field goal percentage so marcus morris is doing great he was a hero against okc um he's at 64 percent. everyone else is either average or below average let me read you some of their efficiency numbers kyrie irving 46.2 true shooting uh, league average is 55 by the way Terry Rozier, 47.6. Gordon Hayward, 48.7. Jason Tatum, 53.6. Jalen Brown, 39.3. So I think we all believe that they're going to shoot better over time. But can the Wizards, sorry, can the Celtics be an above average offense? Slip there. Well, yeah. Team that I still want to bought see into two. its own hype, thinks it's better than it is. Wow. Wow. No, nah, I'm just playing. Um, but yeah, can they be an above average offense? Because last year they were only 18th. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was about to say is that, like, they didn't have a great offense last year either. They were very middle of the pack, and I think everyone just assumed, well, when they eventually get Hayward back this year and, you know, a healthier Kyrie and things will be fine, well, 
like looking at it, Kyrie is not 100% healthy yet. And Gordon no. Hayward's still obviously working his way back. He still looks like a shell of himself. Um, they're obviously going to shoot a hell of a lot better than 21% in open threes. Like things are just going to um, trend back to normal. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll at least push him to the middle of the pack. But like, I, there's not like a track record here of of anything where we should assume that they're going to have a great offense. Like, I don't think they will. I think they might settle in around middle of the pack, slightly above average. They're just going to pair it with that great defense, which they still have. I think they're yeah. number one in D right they're now. They're number one. Yep. I actually tweeted that last night that, like, right now the the healthy Celtics we were all waiting for look a lot like last year's beat-up Celtics in that they've got this, like, grimy offense. They find themselves down 15 at the half, like, grind their way back into games, have a great defense, but, like, it doesn't look pretty. They, they look kind of like the same team to me right now. I think it's... So much of it is just going to come down to like what Kyrie and Hayward ultimately look like at the end of the season because neither of those guys really looks right at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Celtics kind of got by last season running their offense through Horford. And yeah, it's frankly like if you don't have like a superstar on ball creator, it's a pretty good option because he is a really good facilitator for like an egalitarian offense. But when you have Kyrie there, like you're expecting him to kind of initiate and like be the guy at the point of attack who's breaking a defense down and facilitating like with kickouts or at least getting to the rim. And he just like hasn't been doing a whole lot of that stuff. And it really seems like he's trying to find himself right now and get his own offense going. Like his jump shot's been a bit wonky and Very his wonky. explosiveness hasn't really quite been there. So that to me is like the most important thing, just like getting him going and feeling comfortable because like he is going to be their primary initiator. Um, and Hayward, the same thing. Like he's a guy who, at least as like a secondary playmaker, they're going to really rely on to make that next play. And he hasn't looked entirely comfortable either. And it's like usually when he's catching the ball, I think he's just like taking a little bit too long with it. Mm-hmm. And it's not about the decision making. I think it's just about like him not feeling entirely comfortable yeah. right now. Like he's assessing risk. Like how how much impact am I going to take if I drive like this? Yeah, that's, I feel that. Like, I yeah. think it, everything's like a little bit methodical, a little bit mechanical, and mm-hmm. he is maybe just like up inside his own head a little bit. I think it'll come with time, but I don't know if we can expect this team to be like a top 10 offense necessarily. But if they're like top 15 in offense and their defense remains number one, I think yeah. they're still going to be obviously a pretty damn good team. Yeah, I think everyone was kind of expecting them to turn into the Warriors where they were top five both ends, you know, egalitarian offense, everyone shoots the ball. And I think on paper they can be that at their very best. But right now they look more like the like the, the Tom Thibodeau uh, Chicago Bulls where like Derrick Rose was their number one guy and everyone else was following suit. But like this team has way more talent offensively uh, than those Bulls teams had. And quite honestly, if I, if I were Brad Stevens, I might try to look at how can I redistribute some of the shots because I think Kyrie's focus should be to be aggressive, number one guy, but to make plays for other a little bit more than for him to just shoot the ball for himself because he's a great scorer, but no, you know, no doubt about it. But like the Celtics are more dangerous as a team than they are just as one guy trying to create for himself. Like I feel like there are other guys on the team that could get more shots. Tatum can get more shots. Like. Jalen Brown deserves more shots to get himself going early because right now he's just lost out there at, at all times. Even a guy like Hayward, I think he's been a guy who's been a really good pick-and-roll distributor um, and creator, and he doesn't really get the chance to do that as much, and he has to literally be split up in the second half and come off the bench so that he doesn't play with Kyrie because Kyrie's so ball-dominant. Like I feel like Kyrie should be more of a distributor in this case. Um, but, yeah, I think the Celtics are going to improve from 29th. I mean, that's just too low for them. Um, one guy that I may or may not improve is Carl Anthony Towns right now, who is just uh, looks really sad. I, I feel bad for him almost. Um, he's shooting forty six. Sorry, he's shooting forty two percent from the field. His usage rate is lower than Jaron Jackson and Demontis Sabonis. And uh, Cash just wrote a great feature about this. 
on the score app you should go check it out um what did uh what did towns tell you about his own game and what did the rest of the Timberwolves say yeah look man there's there's like this general frostiness around the Timberwolves right now and I think, oh, think? I think it's very clear I, I don't think you need to be in the locker room to see that um yeah I, I wrote a piece basically saying that Carl Anthony Towns is way too good of an offensive talent to be like settling for this weird supporting like background role on a not great team we know that Jimmy Butler's great. That's fine. Jimmy Butler's be- a better NBA player than Carl Anthony Towns right now, but Jimmy Butler's not going to be there for much longer um, and doesn't want to be there. And then, like, you just look at the fact that Carl Anthony Towns is at a lower usage rate than Andrew Wiggins every year they've played together. And it's like, how have Tom Thibodeau and the, and the team not realized that Wiggins should be nowhere near Towns in terms of usage? Like, they're just not anywhere near the same type of offensive talent. And then, like, since Rose has been in Minnesota, he has a higher usage than Towns when they're both on the floor together. Like, that's just incredibly stupid. And it's on the team, but it's also on Towns himself. Like, if you watch that game against Toronto as well, he wasn't exactly, like, going into the post hard and then demanding the ball or, like, sealing his man or, like, going rim to rim. And I thought this is what was interesting. And it actually didn't make it into my post just because there was a lot of other quotes. But after the game when, you know, I was asking Tom Thibodeau if if Towns needs to be more aggressive and his answer was along the lines of, like, you know, um, the game will tell you when to shoot, but then he says you've got to run the floor. Usually when he runs the floor, the defense can't get set, and those are usually his best post-up opportunities. He didn't specifically say he's not running the floor enough, but I think you can read between the lines if someone says, should player A be more aggressive and your response is, well, you know, his best opportunities are when he runs the floor and gets down there quickly. Um, so I thought that was interesting and to me was a, a kind of a sub, tw- not tweet, but you know what I mean. And then another thing that didn't make it into the post is Carl Anthony Towns telling me that he isn't worried about offense right now because he's focusing on defense. And he came into the season thinking he needs to improve his defense, which is fair. He yeah. does need to improve his defense. But he then told me straight up, I'm happy defensively right now. And if he's happy with his performance defense, look... The he numbers, made Serge Ibaka look like Anthony Davis. The numbers man. show that his rim protection is actually a little better this year in a small sample size, but that's not saying much. The, the fact is he's still in, like, incredibly terrible pick-and-roll defender. Um, He looks lost. Like, he doesn't know where to be on the court when defending pick-and-rolls or defending in space. Like, he's not a good defensive player right now. So for him to say to me, I'm happy, you know, defensively with where he is, is maybe tells you a little bit about, like, I don't know how hard he pushed. I, I don't know. Like, it's just how can you be happy with that kind of defensive performance? And again, the whole point of my post is forget defense for a second. They, this Minnesota just gave this guy a five-year deal that could be worth $190 million. For him to live up to the value of that deal, which he's fully capable of, he's going to maximize his offensive value because they're, they didn't give him that contract for defense. Everyone knows that. And if you're not giving him the ball enough and he's not demanding the ball enough, like there's a problem there. And I don't think it's going to be remedied, as some people do, just by Jimmy Butler leaving because before Jimmy Butler got there, Towns was still taking a background seat to Andrew Wiggins. Like it's just a mess. No, it's it's always going to be, or it it has been at least historically, like a two way street, right? Like Towns um, needs help from his teammates to basically like give him the ball in the right spots because he is at this point, at least, not a player who can really create a lot of his own offense, right? Like, he relies on other players to give him the ball. So part of that is incumbent on his teammates to give him the ball. A lot of it is incumbent on him, like you said, to get to his spots, to make himself a target, and to demand the ball. And going back to something we were talking about earlier about Blake Griffin, one of the ways that he's really thrived this year is, like, the Pistons being up-tempo, running down the floor, and, like, getting him into the post 
against a scrambling defense, basically before they have time to like set their matchups, before they have time to send a double team and going to work right away. And you don't see Towns really doing that. Like he is not basically like being aggressive enough, getting deep post position, demanding the ball. And like, I don't know. I don't know how much this Butler situation has played into it, but it's like you've got Minnesota broadcasters basically ragging on him on the air saying he has that look in his eyes like he doesn't want to be here and doesn't want to play tonight. And I I have to think that this Butler situation has a lot to do with it. It's like if you look at the way that situation played out, he has this max extension sitting on the table all summer. He waits to sign it until like the rumors come out that Jimmy Butler like absolutely is like demanding to be traded. And then all like all this like drama takes place where Butler like doesn't end up getting traded, returns to the team, rips on the rest of the team in practice, then goes and like does a media hit with Rachel Nichols, where he basically like continues to dump on the rest of his teammates, and now Towns has to go out there and play with this dude and like play hard and act like he cares, like whether the team wins or loses. I just like we were saying, like at the top of the program, I mean, I just think they need to get the situation resolved. And I do think that that is going to help both because uh, Towns inevitably will see more touches with Butler gone because like they won't have enough creators. Like they're going to need to give him the ball more often. But also what are you talking about? They have an MVP in Derrick Rose right on the roster but that's the thing, who like, has a really high usage. He, he I'm serious. Get, they might actually. He'll obviously get some of those touches, but he's going to split them with Wiggins and Rose. Like he's, It's not like he's going to get yeah. a bulk of, of Butler's touches. But I just think for the sake of his psyche, like <laughs> fair enough, um, yeah. they they need to just like get Butler out of there because yeah, I, it's like you just watch him play and he does not look engaged to me at all. Well, yeah, I mean, he's focused on Fortnite. It's, it is what it is, man. If, if four picks... <laughs> Isn't enough for them to get Butler out of there. I, I don't think Butler's leaving anytime soon. Oh, yeah, that's man. true. All right. Um, number nine, the Oklahoma City Thunder are winless. Um, we have them right now in the notes. The Thunder are trash. And, uh, man, I mean, let's just set the table here. Highest payroll in the league, $146 million. They're paying more for this team than the Warriors are paying for five all-star starters. Okay. The team as a whole, the Thunder, are shooting 39% from the field and 24% from three. Russell Westbrook just came off a game where he was 5-for-20 against the Celtics and just absolutely bricks in the fourth quarter, basically shot them out of the game. Of course, Paul George is not doing much better, shooting 37% on the year. And newcomer Dennis Schroeder, who was tabbed by many to be six-man of the year, so far shooting 30% for the season. Never been an efficient player. He's gotten worse. Um... So I have one question. Are they actually worse without Carmelo Anthony? Because I saw them play Patrick Patterson in the fourth quarter last night, and Patrick Patterson was probably their best player. He scored seven straight points, which is usually his quota for a month. And then um, the Thunder still lost that game against the Celtics. They and scored one point in the last four and a half minutes of that game. Oh, God. It was, it it was, was Stephen Adams on a free throw. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think... The most telling stat right now is the Thunder are, I think, fifth in the league in wide-open three-point attempts so far this year, and they're shooting 22.7% on wide-open threes. So what that tells me is defenses are basically feeling totally comfortable collapsing on Mm -hmm. Russ and packing the paint and leaving the likes of, like, Jeremy Grant and, like, who else do they have on the wing? That's the thing. Their only shooter is, like, Alex Abrinas and Paul George. And Alex Abrinas barely even plays because he's such a defensive liability, yeah, right? he's like, terrible. So, you know, defenses are collapsing, leaving, like, you know, Dennis Schroeder and whoever else open on the perimeter, and these guys can't make shots. And 
you watch their games and like there is just no space on offense and like Russ didn't look physically right in that no, Celtics no, game. Still coming back from injury, but and stuff. also like he was just repeatedly driving into traffic, and it was like there was nothing he could do. And when he would kick out of it, they wouldn't make shots. So wow, playoff Russ making an early appearance. Yeah, I mean, I just I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but it's like I, I think it's going to improve, and the defense should be better than it's been, even without yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Andre Robertson without Robertson there like they should be better defensively than they've been mm. but Robertson's probably their best shooter right now <laughs> oh, Jesus <laughs> but, yeah and, and you know the question of like the half choking question of are they actually worse with Omelo? I, I don't think they're worse with Omelo. I think they're a worse team when Russell Westbrook and Paul George combined to shoot like 10% yeah um, and with Robertson still out and, and you know all the things going for them but like this team needs shooting we've known that we've known that for years now and they still haven't really addressed it and the offense will get better, but it's not going to be great if they can't shoot. This yeah. is 2018. I don't care how much of a bulldog rim-running point guard you have. You're not going to have a great offense if you can't shoot. Yeah. Um, and that's doubly so when Paul George, who is actually their best shooter, is shooting 37% from the field. Um, the the scary thing, like we talked about with the Pistons not believing too much into the hype of the how good they've been because their net rating is like barely above average. The very concerning thing with the Thunder is like they're losing pretty po- like badly. You look at their net rating, and it's like just ahead of Phoenix and Cleveland. They're getting outscored by more than 10 points per 100 possessions. That's just not like a team losing close game. That's a team getting run off the floor a lot of nights. And that's what would concern me. And even Russ, you know, you admire him saying they're going to be fine because I, I think he said something along the lines like, I'll make sure we're okay. But then you look at how the team fell apart down the stretch against Boston because Russ was trying to ensure that they would be okay. Like him going kamikaze isn't great. Um, so, like, yeah, they're they're obviously going to be a lot better than this, and they should find their way into the playoff mix at least. But there's like a lot of reasons to be concerned here. Yeah, definitely. And then number ten, let's quickly wrap up with this. Um, the Cleveland Cavaliers are obviously a dumpster fire. I, I got a little bit excited for them just because I thought they looked decent in preseason and they looked reasonably competitive in that first game of the year. But man, this team is just—it's sad. J.R. Smith is shooting like 0 for seven from the field. Um, all the veterans look super old. I mean, this, I mean, we, we saw last year LeBron's supporting cast was terrible, and now without LeBron, this team is just super terrible. So there's clearly going to be a fire sale coming very soon. I think Kyle Korver is going to be up for grabs. I think a lot of other pieces might be up for grabs as well. Um, but I think the one guy that should be moved is Kevin Love, right? They signed him to that extension, I think, to help, help him retain some value. Um, it's a bit of an expensive deal, so they might have undercut themselves to a bit. But, I mean, like, there's still a lot of teams that can use Kevin Love. So let's just quickly each propose one trade that will make sense for uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers in terms of dumping Kevin Love and trying to move forward with an actual rebuild. I would love for the Hornets to try and get him. I They, they so badly need a complimentary star for Kemba to play with. Like, he is on an island there, and he's been so, so good, and he just does not have any help. So if they could find a way to trade, like, MKG plus Cody Zeller plus maybe a pick, like either a protected first or, you know, one that converts to two seconds, something to that effect. Um, I don't like, I would think that that would be enough for the Cavs. Um, they get off of Love's long term money, they get a pick in the deal, and they get MKG, who I think still has some untapped upside. And for the Hornets, I think, like, if they want to make a pitch for Kemba to stay beyond this season, I know he's talked the talk about loving Charlotte and like wanting to stay there long term. I hope for his sake that that doesn't happen because I so desperately want to see him play for a good team. 
But this would be a good start, just like finding a complimentary star for him to play with, and one that I think would complement him really well. And like a pick and pop with those two guys could be deadly. Yep. Um, obviously, you know, their defense wouldn't be helped by trading MKG and Zeller, like two of their best defenders, for Kevin Love. But at this point, I just think they need to like try something new. That roster has been like so static for so long. And I just I want to see, like, who's the best player that Kemba has ever played with? Like Nick Batum in 2015-16? Yeah, yeah, or like yeah. Al Jefferson in 2013-2014. Like, those are the best players that Kemba yeah, Walker has wow. ever played He's with. never played with an active All-Star. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Al Jefferson was an All-Star that season. He made third-team All-NBA because he had a crazy finish of the season. But whatever. Like, Kemba wasn't even Kemba then. So, no. like, since he's made the leap to kind of, like, superstar status, he, he has not had, like, a teammate that is worthy of him. And it makes me sad. So, I feel like if the Hornets could pull this off then that would be cool. Um, my trade is, I think, a little bit... It's selling low on Kevin Love, but it really is just getting out of that contract because I think it's not looking great for him. Kevin Love, by the way, right now, is shooting uh, 32% from the field. It's uh, it's not great, but the Mavericks, I think, could really use a guy like that to facilitate their offense. The Mavericks love to shoot a lot of threes. Kevin Love obviously fits that scheme. So why not trade Harrison Barnes and two second-round picks? I mean, it's low, but, I mean, seriously, I don't think Kevin Love actually has that much value at the moment. And Harrison Barnes' contract is cheaper, and arguably he's more of an exciting player. I think the, if you look at the, the, the Cavs, they have a lot of bigs, not a lot of wings. I think Harrison Barnes is a better fit. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't love that trade. I guess I don't hate it either. Uh, you, want, I, you, you want me to give some commentary on it, or should I just get to no, mine? No, no, no. I feel like the Cavs are going to need a, a first-round pick, though, to to make that deal kind of worthwhile. Because what is Harrison Barnes doing for them? He has uh, two years left on his deal. Like, he is, I mean, not. it's, it's not like he's going to necessarily help them tank any more than Kevin Love is helping them tank right now. Um, but... Like to get two seconds out of it, yeah. and then and then have like two tanking years with Harrison Barnes. Like I don't even think they would care if they were going full tank to have Harrison Barnes on the team. I think they'd rather get future assets. So all right, fine, you get one first. It's a lottery protected first. <laughs> I'll uh, throw my quote unquote my trade package out there. It's actually piggybacking off of one of Wolf Fund's ideas, but I actually kind of like it. It's Kevin Love to the Suns for a package uh, that includes Ryan Anderson and Josh Jackson. Not that concerned about giving up on Josh Jackson early because the Suns have some young talent already. And I know that there would obviously be defensive concerns with this team, but I kind of like them going all in on the offensive end and having a three-man core of Devin Booker, Kevin Love, and DeAndre Ayton. I think teams would be very hard-pressed to stop that on most nights. And I think that might even make them like a sleeper if they stay healthy, a sleeper candidate to like hang around the, the playoff race. I really do. Um, again, they would need help defensively, but they'd also have a ton of, ca- even making this trade, they'd still have a ton of cap space the next couple of years. So like, I think this would be an avenue um, to, to go places in a market that can attract stars. Like it's a warm, you know, Southern city. Uh, so yeah, kind of like that deal. Also, I- Ryan Anderson's deal is uh, not fully guaranteed for next year. So like from Cleveland's perspective, they're not taking on that much salary for next season. Yeah. And I think Josh Jackson is still like a, you know, tantalizing enough prospect that just getting him in the deal and getting off of the money, um, obviously, you know, shedding Ryan Anderson's contract after this season would be good enough for them. And for the Suns, like, it could be a long-term play, right? Like, you'd have love for another four years after this one. And I think what you want is to be able to spread the floor around Booker and Aiton, right? Like, their two-man game, I think, is already really effective. And they've had success even just, like, spreading the floor with, like, with Anderson and Ariza, Having Kevin Love there, a guy who can not only shoot, but can also actually like make some plays, 
uh, I think they could be super effective. Well, there you go. We looked at 10 early season trends, and uh, I'm sure we'll revisit them when we're correct on these uh, assessments, and I think we'll just ignore it when we're wrong. So for uh, Wolfon and for Cash, that does it for another episode of Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.